When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. I must admit that before I read Stanford University psychologist Carol Dweck's best-selling book, Mindset, I was pretty skeptical of the whole thing. I'm not a big fan of pop psychology as a general rule, and there's nothing that will push my buttons quite like a book that announces itself as the new psychology of success, how we can learn to fulfill our potential. After all, I said to myself, there are no shortcuts to success. The secret, today, yesterday, a thousand years ago, and presumably a thousand years from now, lies in unhesitatingly and passionately throwing yourself into a situation, embracing the opportunity to forthrightly capitalize on the circumstances to the best of your ability. Imagine my surprise, then, when I learned that that's what Carol's book was really all about, together with highly revealing and personally relevant examples of the many roadblocks that we unthinkingly create for ourselves to stop us from doing precisely that. So I do want to get into, as I, as I mentioned before, um, a, a bit of personal background mm-hmm. in terms of how you became involved in uh, your work. But I thought maybe first we should actually talk about what your work is mm-hmm. and uh, what you mean by mindsets, how we'd even get going, how to mm-hmm. define a mindset and so forth. So what is a mindset, first of all? A mindset is a belief people have. And uh, the way I've studied these mindsets, let me start again. Sure. Um, in my work, a mindset is a belief people have about whether their basic qualities are just fixed, given, inborn, or are things that they can change and develop. For example, some people have a fixed mindset about their intellectual abilities. They think their intelligence is just fixed, you have a certain amount, that's that. And what we find is that when people have this view, they worry about how much they have, They don't want to do hard things that might reveal inadequacy. And they don't stick to hard things um, because they feel dumb. Mm -hmm. 
But other people have a growth mindset. They believe their basic abilities can be developed through hard work, good strategies, help and mentoring from others. They don't think everyone's the same or that anyone can be Einstein, but they understand that people don't become the people that they become. Like Einstein didn't become Einstein until he worked at it. So people with a growth mindset are more likely to take on hard challenges and stick to them because that's how you learn and grow. And you yourself, according to your book, and I presume it's the absolute truth, um, you talk about how you had a fixed Mm -hmm. mindset at an earlier time, and you later recognized this and and moved towards a growth mindset yourself. And presumably, in so doing, you you learned the necessity, the power, Mm -hmm. and and, and the overall importance of of doing so. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that story, because you don't talk about it at great length in the book. You refer Mm -hmm. to it occasionally. Well, I grew up in the heyday of the IQ, fixed intelligence era. My sixth grade teacher seated us around the room in IQ order and assigned all of the responsibilities and privileges in terms of IQ. So coming out of this fixed mindset era, was this normal, by the way? Was this, was this, was, was your, because this sounds almost barbaric, that your teacher would, would line you up in terms of IQ. Did, did other students and other people you knew? It wasn't, they... it wasn't typically done. She carried it to an extreme. <laughs> but people placed a lot of faith in the idea of IQ as a summary right. of your intelligence. Now, as I also say in my book, Mindset, The inventor of the IQ test did not have that in mind at all. Alfred Binet had a radical growth mindset. But Americans and English people took his test and said they were measuring intelligence and often said they were measuring fixed intelligence. And as with many fads, it was adopted wholeheartedly by many educators. Right. Mrs. Wilson was probably an outlier in the sense that she carried it to such lanes. We were already the top IQ class in the school, and yet she thought every gradation was deeply meaningful. Wow. Well, let's hope she was an outlier. Anyway, so this was your, yeah. this, this so, your background. <laughs> so this, this is, is my you, background. This is, it's amazing you survived, let alone. <laughs> it is amazing I survived, and um, I was fascinated by that. And really? As a, young, as a young child, you were, you were fascinated I by was, it. You weren't traumatized by it. I was traumatized. Well, it's interesting because I was a winner in that lottery, but the anxiety was tremendous because well, what if we took another test? Right. Or, you have to protect your position at the oh, top of the Oh, wow, mirror. yeah, that's, that, that's how you define yourself. Or one day a new girl came into the class. She had moved uh, to the school district. And instead of saying to myself, oh, well, maybe a new friend, maybe she's nice, I thought, oh, she better not take my seat. Right. Uh, so it just gave you this 
What do you do? How do you trip someone on an IQ test? How do you, how do you make sure you <laughs> knock them over or you give them, feed them the wrong I answer? I don't know. She came with her prepackaged IQ right. and I hoped it wasn't <laughs> higher than mine. And, um, but it, it's just a view of the world right. where you, you, not wishing other people well, they're your natural rivals and, and you have to not contradict this number if you want people to, your teacher to respect you. And it, so with, even if you're a winner in that lottery, it's teaching you the wrong thing. I also, I didn't want to go to the count, uh, the um, citywide spelling bee because I was already the best speller. And why should I go somewhere else and lose? Right, you have nowhere to go but down. Yeah. Right. And, and this is a very, very limiting mentality. I, I knew I didn't like it at the time, but when that's the main game in town, you sure. play it. Well, you don't even know, presumably, right? You don't, you're not even, I'm guessing, you're not mm -hmm. even aware that there is a whole other way of looking at the world, or, or is that not right? That's right. At the same time, I had this duality because I knew I had been with these other students for years. I knew they were great students, even if they might have had a slightly lower number than some of the other students. So it didn't completely make sense to me. Well, there I am in graduate school. Okay, so this this presumably continued. You didn't have Mrs. Wilson. Mrs. Wilson. Yeah, yeah. You didn't have Mrs. Wilson like people all the way up through I, undergraduate, through high school, undergraduate, presumably. I but. didn't have people as extreme as Mrs. Wilson all the way through, but I did carry with me this idea that my claim to fame was being smart, being smarter than many others, and. Um, and so I made sure that I took courses and majored in things where I knew I could do well. So psychology, uh, what, psychology what, what had what, what interested had me, and I thought it was um, possible and maybe even easy to do well. I see. But, you know, it isn't. Sure. It's a really hard field. When you look at the other sciences, um, the problems are agreed upon. The measurement is handed to you. And you have to do it in a maybe deeper or more clever way than someone else. But in psychology, you have to take this messy stuff and um, figure out how to think about it, figure out how to measure it figure out how to do experiments on it. So in the end, psychology is tremendously difficult, but I didn't know that at the time. Sure, and you weren't at mm -hmm. the end, presumably. I mean, at this yeah. point you were- I was taking you were, courses. You were taking courses, mm -hmm. you were an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. and, and so you're moving along, I'm you're moving doing along. well. I'm doing well. You get to graduate school, and then what happens? I get to graduate school, and I become fascinated with how people cope with failure. Hmm. There was research around at the time, um, research on animals, uh, with a phenomenon called learned helplessness. 
and it was uh, showing that animals who were put in completely unpredictable environments uh, stopped trying to do things, try, stopped trying to make things happen, because they learned that there was no relationship between what they did and what happened to them. So there's no causal link at all. No so, causal link. So why link. bother? Mm -hmm. So I thought, wow, I wonder if that applies to humans. And I wonder if in the face of failure, there are um, people who give up and people who persevere. Right. And I, I would really like to understand that. Well, later on, looking back, I realized, well, why was I so concerned with failure? Right. Um, I had never really failed in any monumental or appreciable way. What, what was this? But it turns out that when you're in this fixed mindset, failure's always on your mind. Should I take this course? Should I do this task? Should I try this project? Because uh, what if it doesn't work out? Right. What would that mean about me and my intelligence? So you're subconsciously fixated on failure. It motivates you, or, or the fear mm -hmm. of failure yeah. motivates you for everything. When you make a mistake, when you say something that isn't perfect, when you uh, don't get something right the first time, what does that mean about you? Right. Uh, if you have to work hard at something, that you think others are doing more readily. What does that mean about you? So that failure is always there on the periphery of your vision. But you didn't realize this at the time. I did not. And, and you, start, you start studying this learned mm -hmm. helplessness and, and the, the potential applicability to humans. Yes. From animals. And so what do you And I started out? with research on children. Um, and something that happened very early really amazed me, that some of these kids were not only able to cope with failure, they seemed to relish it. So I would be giving them problems that they were incapable of solving. I called them the failure problems. But some of them, you know, one 10-year-old boy was working on the problems, and he kind of rubbed his hands together, smacked his lips, and said, I love a challenge. And another one looked up and said, you know, I was hoping this would be informative. I thought, what's, what's These are normal 10-year-olds. Yeah, these are, these well, I don't <laughs> say they're normal, but <laughs> they were very, very wise and very adaptive, effective 10-year-olds. Some of them ended up solving the problems that they weren't supposed to solve because they approached them mm -hmm. in such an effective way, using more and more sophisticated strategies that they were teaching themselves on the spot. Well, on the one hand, I thought they were weird because it was so distant, so foreign from my way of thinking. But on the other hand, I knew that they had um, a secret. They had something very wise that they had figured out. And I was determined to understand what that was. And also, I wondered, could I bottle it? Could I 
distribute it more widely? Could I help myself and other people? So that's what I wanted to ask you. I get the sense of these kids are different than other kids, mm -hmm. but it seems to me there's a bit of a turning point, uh, certainly as a, as a researcher, when you're examining things. You're mm -hmm. looking, you look at animals, you look at humans, yeah. here are some interesting kids. And, but there's a difference between that, I would imagine, and then saying, oh gosh, this actually applies to me. Mm -hmm. This somehow I can learn from these ten-year-old kids yeah. myself. Yes. Is there was there any? Can you isolate any epiphany or moment, or was this a gradual thing that you started realizing? Not only is this an interesting phenomenon, you can distinguish yeah. between these kids and those kids mm -hmm. in this classroom, but it actually is something I can learn from as a researcher. I, I think I saw that pretty early in a preliminary way. Right. Um, but. The impact of it grew over time. Because when you see something so adaptive and you recognize it's something that you don't have, it's something you want. But I didn't yet understand the full basis of it. So I appreciated it at, at a distance, but I couldn't fully relate to it yet. I couldn't say, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to say I love a challenge. I'm going to say I was hoping it would be informative. I wasn't there yet. Right. Was, and, and presumably you were thinking, uh, let me, that's a leading question, so let me back up. Um, I can imagine that uh, if I were in that situation, I would think, where do these kids get this from? Yes. How, how, how are these kids different from That's other kids? what are they, I was... Are they, they're born that, with this? Or, mm -hmm. where's, how, or are they being taught this? Or mm -hmm. being reinforced by their parents? And presumably that, that all led mm -hmm. uh, to your research. Yes. So, so maybe now's a good time to tell me some of the many things that you found out. So how did they get that? And where does it come from? And uh, Well, at this point I can talk about the different steps along the way, right. or I could go to the mindsets. I can do either. I think you should do what you feel like doing. What do you think is best? Different steps along the way, that sounds good. Okay. I could, I could do either. Okay. In this early research, we found that kids who gave up easily, who a failed problem was kind of the end of the world, they were seeing a failure as reflecting on their abilities. I'm not smart. They'd say things like, oh, I never did have a good rememory, or I'm not good at this, oh, I'm not smart, right. that kind of thing. They were taking it as meaning something very meaningful about themselves. Whereas the kids who were showing this resilience were interpreting that difficulty or setback as meaning they needed to try harder or try new strategies. Another child said, oh, mistakes are my friend. Really? You said mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Mistakes are my friend. I really learn from them. Wow. So they were seeing, okay, I have to try something different, more effort, new strategy. These are really normal kids. I can't imagine a kid saying mistakes are my friends. Are these some kind of super incubated in the right growth mindset? No, I've seen a lot of that. <laughs> I've seen, well, maybe they were incubated in the growth mindset, but I've seen a lot of them, too many to ignore. Sure. 
Um, even with young kids in some of my work, we say, uh, you know, okay, um, your little doll made a mistake. What should she do now? And the teacher um, was critical of the mistake. What should she do now? What, what should you do now? And they, some of them give these whole dissertations. Um, well, sometimes it's good when you don't get it right away. Then you can practice it and become better at it. These are four-year-olds. Then you can become, you can practice and be better at it, and the teacher will be happy, and you'll learn. And, or a second grader talking, um, telling someone who got a lot wrong on their test what they should do. First, first uh, try to do the problems. If you can't do it, try two more times. <laughs> and then if you can, ask someone for help. And if you can't do that, do this. So many of these very young kids have well worked out theories about what a setback means and what you should do when it happens. Right. Um, one of the things when I, when I read your book, which I found curious, one of the things that puzzled me was why people cling to some outmoded beliefs in stark contrast to all the evidence that seems to be mm -hmm. around them. And you go through this quite explicitly you don't quite answer that question, so I'm going to get to the question. Okay. Let me, let me, let me set it up. I think it's an, almost an impossible question to answer, so I'm not accusing you of not, not answering it. But let me be more specific with what I mean. So you go through a wide variety of different uh, walks of life, different characters, different mm -hmm. people, and so forth. Uh, you talk about excellent teachers and what makes an excellent teacher, and you highlight the excellent teachers are those who believe in the growth mindset of all of their students mm -hmm. and themselves. Mm -hmm so that they don't regard themselves as these authority figures who yes. are necessarily instilling yes. these facts mm -hmm. in, these, in these little little heads, but they're all part of the learning process. Yes. They're all developing. They are inspiring people to, uh, to improve and, mm -hmm. and effort and nothing. Everything is a work in progress. Now, everyone I know who has been accomplished by any reasonable definition in any field can point to one or two of such teachers that they yes. personally have had. And so this seems to me something which is commonly understood. That yes. There are great teachers, and this is what great teachers do. Mm -hmm. Similarly, you talk about great business leaders, mm -hmm. and you mention people like Jack Welch, and you mention, uh, I can't remember Lou all the names. and Mulcahy. Right, exactly. And you mention the, the CEO who, who himself or herself is filled with his growth mindset and is relying upon the team mentality, mm -hmm. learning from the people with whom they are working, um, not looking at themselves as these authority figures on right. high. They are, of course, in a position of authority, but they are developing themselves yes. and working together. Um, this also is acknowledged in the social consciousness that these people have been great CEOs and have mm -hmm. done wonderful things. You talk about athletes. You talk about people like Michael Jordan, who had to work so incredibly hard to be able to achieve what he had achieved. Um, so what puzzles me is that all these things are things that everybody knows. At some level, we all recognize this, we all know this, we, we are confronted almost daily with examples of this, mm -hmm. and yet it's as if we don't want to pay attention to it. Yes. We want to regard the, the, the talented athlete, 
the, the immaculately uh, conceived athlete who, who is just a natural talent who steps out on the tennis court or steps out on the baseball diamond. And is an immediate hero. And is an immediate hero. We want to believe in the, the CEO who instinctively knows everything and, uh, and, and, and can just direct with a golden touch, the Midas touch, never does mm -hmm. a thing wrong. So how is it possible, um, let me ask a different question. Why is it, in your view, that despite all evidence to the contrary, which is all around us, we as a society are so constantly fixated on this golden image that, that doesn't seem to measure up to yes. reality. Why is that? I think there are a few reasons. One is that I think when you have a fixed mindset, it's very powerful and you see things through that lens. So you focus on what someone has accomplished as a sign of their natural ability. You see Michael Jordan and you think, well, look what he's done. He has to be a form of genius. So you're transferring your own yeah. mindset to, to natural. Second, we don't see what people put in to succeeding. We don't see their effort. We don't see their obstacles. We don't see their heartbreak. We just see the end product. And we may assume that, unlike us, they just skated or coasted to this greatness. I teach a freshman seminar on mindsets every year. And I ask students about their heroes. They all think they're heroes, or most of them think their heroes were just born great, and that their accomplishments were a natural outgrowth of that, their greatness. Then they do research, and it has never, ever been the case that their hero did not struggle, did not encounter um, huge obstacles. Uh, often the hero uh, started out with mediocre talent or was told they were not cut out for this. Right. Um, and yet, when we see someone at the pinnacle and we don't see what they put in, which is often, uh, then we conclude, we, we're liable to conclude they just had it. It's what I like um, to watch the Olympics and we hear Stories. What eat the stories of these athletes' uh, dedication and setbacks and resilience and kind of that's what I thrive on. But there's a third reason I think that we set people up as gods. If we thought that everyone could be special accomplished and even great through their own initiative and efforts. Oh, what's our excuse? Right. Um, so it's, yeah, it's an easy way out to say, it's well, an that easy person's way. just they a They just have it. They're geniuses. They're special. That's why they're that way. The students that are in your class when they're doing background research on their heroes, mm -hmm. and they recognize that they are individuals with feet of clay that have had to work and sweat yes. and done all the rest yes. of it. What is, Typically, what is their reaction? Does it, can you analyze that into one of three or four things, depending on their perspective? How, how does that work? Well, they've taken my course, and they've learned, they're learning about mindsets. So I think they're, 
fascinated. It hooks them in. Right. It makes them think, gee, if I understand more about this process, I can engage in that process more effectively. It makes them think about what they want to be in the future and how they're going to get there. Um, it makes them think it's not about sitting around and discovering what your true talent is. It's about thinking, who do I want to be? Right. And using all the resources at your disposal to get there. One of the things that I found um, very interesting and somewhat counterintuitive in your book and very practical was this notion of praise. Mm -hmm. So you, you identify the fact that although any good parent will feel that he or she should be praising his or her child, that's, that's the role. We have to give confidence to our children mm -hmm. and we have to make sure that to imbue them with a sense of positiveness and mm -hmm. so forth. There are two very different types of praise. There is, uh, and this is my language, uh, but there is good praise and bad <laughs> praise. Um, it's not very technical language, best I can, I'm not a professional psychologist, so I, I opt for that. Good and bad will do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but certainly in terms of the mindsets, insofar as there is a certain type of praise that, um, that reinforces the fixed mindset, and there is a certain type of praise that can reinforce a, a growth mm -hmm. mindset. And uh, first of all, I'd like you to, um, to elaborate on that and, mm -hmm. and, and talk a little bit about that. But I'd also like to ask you uh, how you stumbled upon that and was that surprising mm -hmm. to you when you actually stumbled yes. upon that? Because that seems like a very, very concrete and interesting result that to mm -hmm. some extent is counterintuitive. I mean, you would, you would say to, your, to a parent, well, praise your child. You wouldn't say praise your child in the right way or you could be doing more harm than good if you're praising your child in the wrong way. Well, I would, but, right, but now I, mean, I would. Now you, right. <laughs> well, it was the mid to late 1990s when we started thinking about praise. I had been doing the mindset work, and we were hearing all these self-esteem gurus telling parents, praise your children as lavishly and frequently. Tell them how smart they are. Tell them how talented they are. And um, my students and I thought, well, wait a minute. Those kids with a fixed mindset, those vulnerable kids, are obsessed with how smart they are and always measuring it. And wouldn't praising intelligence communicate to kids, one, that I can look inside of you and see this fixed thing, two, that's what I care about. That's what's important to me. And therefore, three, you better be smart all the time. It seemed to us that... David? Yeah. Okay, try to be more quiet. It seemed to us that praising intelligence could communicate a fixed mindset with all of its vulnerabilities. Well, the great thing about research is you don't have to wonder. You can put it to the test. Right. But then we asked, so what is the other kind? You might say the good kind of praise. That's my term. That's the technical, yeah, technical, it's a technical term. Yeah, technical term. <laughs> um, 
And we thought about the growth mindset students and how they were always focused on their effort and strategies. And so we thought about process praise. Praise for the process that the child engages in and the process that leads them toward their good result. We also understood that this process was also the thing that you did when you had a poor result that improved it later. So by giving this process praise, you are not only telling a child how to succeed and why they succeeded, you're telling them what to do. And you're being unrealistic, as you pointed out. I mean, if you go to a competition and you fail, mm -hmm. and, and, and you're being told, oh, you did, you were fantastic, you were really the best one there, everybody yeah. else was crazy, then uh, you're, you're doing a couple of things. You're, first of all, you're, you're lying mm -hmm. like, most yeah. of the time, uh, which is generally not a, not a good practice if, if you want people to come to grips with the truth. But in addition, you're, you're not setting up the whole understanding yes. of how much effort is required, yes. conquering obstacles, yes. learning from failure, and you talk a lot about the importance of failure. Yes. And, and anyone who's successful <clears throat> will, will, will do so as well. Absolutely. So we set up studies with different ages of, of kids where they worked on a task and then they were praised for their ability or intelligence, or the bad kind, right. <laughs> or they were praised for the process, their effort or their strategies. And we saw over and over and over again that the kids praised for intelligence developed in that situation more of a fixed mindset. They didn't want a hard task. When we gave them a hard task, they lost their confidence. Their performance plummeted. And they lied about it later. Right. Because in that mindset, where intelligence is revered as it's the so end on, they couldn't come to terms with doing poorly, even on something that was new and unfamiliar and difficult. Right. But when we praised the process, the effort or the strategy, they adopted more of a growth mindset about those skills. Most of them, and in some cases over 90% of the kids in a given study, wanted the hard task wow. that they could learn from even if they made mistakes. When we later gave them a hard task, they stayed confident and resilient. And their performance kept improving and improving. So this is the what you had alluded to before. This is the mm -hmm. hard scientific research aspect, you have data, you have control yeah. groups, you have the, the way of establishing a growth mindset, a fixed mindset, seeing the results in mm -hmm. terms of uh, ability to be steadfast, determination, yes. and, and objective results yes. in terms of what it is that they've yes. accomplished. And by the way, many of the kids praised for the process said that the hard problems, these super hard problems were their favorites. That praise made them essentially say, I love a challenge. Right. So how was all of this received? Uh, and I can imagine there, there are a couple of uh, 
couple of different groups. So maybe my question's not actually all that refined because there's your scientific work mm -hmm. uh, and you're publishing in scientific journals and, and uh, you're doing research. And then there's the popular book that you, that mm -hmm. you had written. So there are different, different aspects to this. But let's just move to, the, to after you had written the popular book. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've done your scientific research, you've written the popular book. How, how is this process received by, first of all, academicians, your peers in the, in the mm -hmm. psychological community? Is there a sense that, oh, uh, Dweck has really put her finger on something, it's substantive, or, oh, this is all just yeah. you know, silly, airy-fairy talk, it's not really substantive? What, yeah. what, what, was the, what was the result from the, the professional psychologist, yes. first of all? Yes, um, So um, the mindset work and the praise work, you're referring to uh, both of these. Yeah. Um, once we had a body of that work that we published, it was very well received in the academic community. We did um, major research studies with lots of participants. Um, the studies were, were well designed. The results were consistent. So once we had a body of that work out there, it was quite well received. But I didn't anticipate how difficult it is to get the world word out to the broader public. Hmm. So tell me about that. Is, that. is that what motivated you to write the popular book? That's books? what motivated me to write the popular book. When our praise work came out, it had a lot of press coverage. But, you know, that's just kind of all it was broad, but it was kind of within a short period See, of this time. This is the problem with our superficial age, Carol. This is why we're doing Ideas Roadshow, you know, mm -hmm. because all this stuff just comes out second here, second here. Yeah. No one pays any attention to it. We're changing the world right now. Anyway, I sorry. hope so. Sorry. I'm <laughs> proud to be helping you do it. Uh, so that's what made me feel more is needed. And also my students urged me to write Mindset. They said, we use this, we tell it to our families, we tell it to our friends, they feel helped by this information, uh, they feel their kids are helped by the information. And I was hearing stories of people trying things they wouldn't have tried. When I taught it in my courses, students would say, I always wanted to do this, I never had the courage, now I'm going to do it. Or an athlete came up to me, in one of my courses, he said he was a world-class soccer player, and then he shattered his ankle um, and could never play again. And he was deeply, profoundly depressed and had no direction in his life. And the idea that he could develop other abilities, not that he had only this one talent, but that he could develop any number of abilities to become something else. It just gave him hope again. So my students said to me, you've got to do it. You mentioned in your book that it was very difficult for you to write it, and, and you put in a parenthetical mm -hmm. comment about how in an earlier fixed mindset um, perspective, uh, you wouldn't be admitting such a thing. Yes. <laughs> but now, now you are. Why was it, why was it difficult? Because it, it doesn't seem... It doesn't it's, it's written very fluidly. It's, yes. it's about your research. What, mm -hmm. what, what made it difficult? Was it the idea of distilling 
research issues down to the mm -hmm. general public and not trivializing them? Was it, was yeah. it this or what, what, what was it? It was a few things. First of all, academics were not yet writing this kind of book. Everyone's doing it now. Right. But when I started writing Mindset, uh, very few academics were actually writing books for the public. That was one thing. Another thing is very different from academic writing. Now, my academic writing was always very simple, very clear, and I hope somewhat interesting, but it's a completely different way of writing. I realized it had no personality. And it's not... Deliberately so, presumably. Yeah. And also, it's not that while I'm doing my academic writing, all kinds of interesting and funny things occur to me, and I say, no, no, it doesn't belong here. I'm not that person. Right. It's just a mind um, being as lucid as possible, as logical as possible. But there's no kind of person-person there. And I had to find that voice for mindset. I had to, and it, it, I don't even know if I would characterize it as a process of learning in this case. Um, I had to, or learning to write a different way, I had to learn to access the person I am when I'm with my friends or when I'm talking um, to new people on the airplane or right. somewhere. Um, that, that, that human person with experiences and hopes and dreams and funny stories, I had to, I had to find a way to access that voice. I noticed you used a lot of sports. Are you, a, you seem to be a, quite a sports fan. I right? like sports. Yeah. I like sports. I notice you hate, you. I mean, you really ripped apart John McEnroe. I really I mean, did. I'm, I've been waiting <laughs> to hear from him. I've been waiting years to hear from time him. Time after time, I thought, enough with McEnroe. I mean, poor, poor McEnroe. I mean, well, I, I he agree. was such a beautiful example yeah, I, I, of a fixed mindset, of someone who succeeded abundantly, but, held, but nonetheless held himself back, I believe, sure. with the fixed mindset. And in his autobiography, he just was spilling out fixed mindset all over the place. Sure. Couldn't resist. No, I understand. I also would have picked Jeter over Rodriguez a little more than you did. But anyway, we mm -hmm. all have our... We well, have our you know, that's how it came out. Oh, really? No, I mean, when I wrote the book, yeah. certain athletes were thriving, and later on, other athletes thrived. Oh, come on. So. Jeter was always thriving. Jeter I mean, was always Jeter terrific. Is Jeter. Yeah. I mean, and, and because of work, I should add, not just yeah. because of talent. Jeter, <laughs> Jeter's great. I'm sorry to see that he'll be retiring. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, the the response so uh, drifted a little. Drifting is all yeah. is all good. You mentioned uh, a couple things. So so the idea that academics weren't generally writing popular books That's at the right. time. Was there any blowback from the academic community when you did do that? It's like, oh, Carol's really selling out. What's all this stuff that she's That's doing? That's so interesting. Um, when I did it, 
Well, Mac Malcolm Gladwell was writing his books, but the academics weren't writing their right. own books. Right. And um, when I did it, I thought, okay, I'm taking a risk. I'm, I believe in it. I'm taking this risk. Suddenly, everyone wanted to write a popular book. So there was no blowback whatsoever. I had to make another decision, though, about the book, whether to put personal things in the book. And that is absolutely something that academics don't do. Um, you know, did my mother love me? And what was I thinking in this? And what was this right. heartbreak or something? Um, so academics did not do that at all. And yet, I felt I'm talking to people about their mindset. I don't want to be holier than thou. I don't want to say, oh, oh, you have a fixed mindset. I have a growth mindset. Look how great I am. Mm. I wanted to say, I've been there. I've struggled with that. I still struggle with it. And it's just struggling with it has given me so many rewards to, to struggle to be more in a growth mindset, more welcoming of challenges, more resilient in the face of setbacks, just this impetus to go for it, to go do things that are risky and that you might not have done before. That has brought so many rewards to my life. And I wanted to tell that story. So I did. So necessarily personal. For necessarily all the that, personal. That, mm -hmm. that you gave. Um, look, did some people misinterpret it? So here's one possible yeah. misinterpretation that I can imagine that would come, come out. Um, I could imagine there would be some people who would be very, what I would call, old school. Mm -hmm. uh, they believe in standards. They believe in values. And they would associate this book uh, unknowingly and unthinkingly, and, and doubtless unread, with uh, uh, this sense of, well, a touchy-feely reinforcement that you just have to change your perspective, mm -hmm. that it's a deviation from actual accomplishment and standards. Um, uh, it's, it, it's very clear from everything that we've said before that that's nothing could be further from the truth, that in fact yeah. what you're talking about um, is a way of developing higher standards, of achieving greater things, of becoming yeah. more knowledgeable, so, more capable. Yeah. But were there people who said, oh, this is just this, is just this new age silliness who were in the, in the popular world? Did, did you get misinterpreted? I really, I, I really made sure to emphasize throughout the book that adopting a growth mindset isn't lowering standards. That adopting a growth mindset is about rigorous standards that you reach over time through your dedication. In our research, we always look at grades and test scores. Right. Not because we think that those are the end-alls end and be-alls. Or is it ends-alls and be-alls? <laughs> Hard to know what the plural is. <laughs> Not, okay. But because we're showing over and over that those grades and test scores are a natural byproduct of engaging deeply and effectively in a learning process that the growth mindset promotes. And not um, going to 
prove your intelligence, wanting the grade to, um, uh, to show how great you are. So you'll meet those rigorous standards more effectively via a growth mindset. We show that teaching a growth mindset to students raises their grades, mm. um, makes them stay in school longer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So a growth mindset inspires you to set and reach the most rigorous standards in an effective way. I want to get back to this idea of grades because there's something that, um, that I think is intriguing in terms of public policy. Mm -hmm. um, but first I'd like to talk a little bit um, into cognitive science mm -hmm. a little bit broader. Uh, one of the things that I find captivating and intriguing about your approach is that you're very, you're able to to bring into play aspects of the brain and neuroscience and cognitive mm -hmm. science uh, very explicitly into what it is that you're doing. So by explicitly telling students and teachers um, that this is the way the brain functions, mm -hmm. and here is the plasticity of the brain, mm -hmm. and here is how the brain learns, and this mm -hmm. is what is actually going on inside of us, and bringing into play uh, knowledge that we have uh, acquired, certainly mm -hmm. over the past 20 or 30 years in cognitive science, this great explosion of knowledge as to how we learn, what the brain is doing, how it's processing mm -hmm. information. You're doing two things simultaneously, it seems to me. You're able to um, transmit additional information to people, so they think, oh gosh, this is how the brain works, this is what's actually going on. Mm -hmm. And you're also uh, overtly, and, and maybe to some extent subconsciously, promoting this growth mindset mm -hmm. because you're showing, no, this is what it means to learn. This is what, it's not all innate. It's not all mm -hmm. about what's in your genes. This is actually how the brain acquires, um, uh, this, this is how, how the, brain, the brain develops. Right, and how mm -hmm. the brain works and, and, and how it uh, um, acquires information. Yeah. Have, have you had partnerships with people in the cognitive science community who, who say, this is interesting, I'd like to study mindsets from the perspective of functional MRI. I'd mm -hmm. like to be looking at uh, what's going on in the brain mm -hmm. when people are thinking in one way or yes. the other. Has there been any of that sort of yes, thing that's gone on? Yes, absolutely. And I've um, engaged in some collaborations, and then other researchers have also looked at this. Uh, for example, um, Jason Mosier and his colleagues at Michigan State University recorded the electrical activity from relevant parts of the brain as students with a fixed mindset or a growth mi mindset right. worked on a task and made errors. And what did they find, roughly? That, okay, that when you look at the fixed mindset brain, well, let me start with, when you look at, I'll, let me start that part again. Whatever start um, When you look at the brains, of students with a growth mindset, when they make an error, the relevant parts of the brain light up orangey-red. That shows a lot of activity, indicating that they detected the error, they're processing it deeply, and they're correcting it. When you look at the same parts of the brain 
when students in a fixed mindset make an error, you see almost nothing. Wow. Green, cool, cold. They detect the error and they flee from it right. as quickly as possible. I'll be talking to Stephen Cawson in, in a little while. Oh, great. And he, he um, uh, as of course you know, but I didn't until recently, um, uh, he's written a popular book that summarizes all sorts of research that he's mm -hmm. been involved of with uh, the different Mental areas. Imagery. Right, and the top part of the brain as opposed mm -hmm. to the bottom part of the brain and which one is actually doing planning and so mm -hmm. forth and, and which one is observing data that's coming at you. Um, and the idea is that the, the, the uh, as I understand it, the top part of the brain is, is more involved with frontal lobes and, and parietal lobes are involved more in actually uh, planning and, mm -hmm. and going forwards and processing information. So I would imagine that people yes. who are in the growth mindset who are thinking, who are adopting those challenges, who are trying to find a solution, who are mm -hmm. actively engaged in plotting and planning and scheming, they would have more activity uh, when faced with these sorts of things in, in, the, in, in those parts of the brain. Yeah, uh, but it depends on what you're plotting and planning sure. and scheming. You could plotting be plotting, pl yeah, <laughs> <laughs> plotting, where am I going to run? And also, how am I going to cope with right. Uh, the, this this setback that I've had, right. and we've showed in our work that um, maybe we should get back to the cognitive science. Sure. But we have shown in our work that people in a fixed mindset will find all kinds of strategies for repairing themselves after a setback. Right. They'll compare themselves to people who did worse, rather than find out finding out how to do better. Right. Or as you said, they'll lie about, about their... They'll lie. Thing. They'll go over and over easy problems to sh feel good at it rather than tackle the harder ones, things like that. It seems to me as you're talking that the one sport that is completely indicative of this is golf. Oh. When I think about it, I mean, golf is almost like, correct me if I'm wrong, but as you're talking, I'm thinking this has got to be the, the paradigmatic fixed mindset perspective. All of these guys come in, and they're most sorry, but they're mostly men, uh, at least that I know, that, that come in with this perspective of they think that they're Tiger Woods when they step out on the course. Mm -hmm. They have this image of themselves as, as being this particular level. Um, so any, any uh, data which comes to them, which inevitably does because they're not, they will disregard, they will mm -hmm. lie, they will cheat at it, and, and they, will, they will eliminate. They don't look at, at themselves as a golfing work in progress, scores, yeah. everything. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's almost like the, the apex of fixed-mindedness. Yeah. And also some of it comes from being in a competitive situation where, well, I can't be a loser because that'll make someone else the winner. Right. I mentioned the, the just just now in an offhanded comment about uh, men. Is is there is there some sort of gender differential? Can you make any generalizations in terms of culture or mm -hmm. expectations that that in our society at least men are more prone to be to adopt this fixed mindset mentality than women, or in certain circumstances, or is there is no correlation whatsoever? So, do you want to go there? You want to go back to the um, cognitive science? I think I've just gone there. But okay, we can so go back to <laughs> okay, no, I'm just checking. Okay. But we can go, like I said, uh, as I we said, we can go early, back. Anytime you want to okay. say something, so um, I'll answer that. Okay. Well, um, there's no general, overall, consistent finding that males or females have more of a fixed or growth mindset, but when females have 
a fixed mindset, it hurts them more. Hmm. Men are more likely to think, when they have a fixed mindset, to think, it's fixed and I, I have it. And it's hard to shake that hmm. in them. Females, on the whole, tend to have um, less of that overwhelming confidence. And so a fixed mindset combined with low confidence or shaky confidence is a real liability. It's fixed and I may not have it. I, I don't think I have it. The other thing is that in many fields, there are negative stereotypes about women. In STEM, science, technology, engineering, math fields, in um, certain humanities like philosophy or uh, social sciences like economics. Uh, there are negative stereotypes about women. In the corporate world, there are negative stereotypes. In the tech world, which is part of STEM, right. uh, there are negative stereotypes. A negative stereotype is a fixed mindset judgment. It's fixed and your group doesn't have it or doesn't have it as much as my Others, group right. or other groups. Um, it's hard when a female already has a fixed mindset to withstand that stereotype, especially in these areas where there is a lot of challenge, a lot of struggles, um, uh, setbacks. Because there's additional social pressure brought on by this. Yeah, research. so if you're in a fixed mindset and you are struggling, you might think, ooh, maybe they're right. Mm. But if you have a growth mindset, where we've been showing in a number of studies now, females in computer science, females in math, if you have a growth mindset, you're able to withstand these stereotypes or setbacks better because you think, hey, this is a learned set of skills. Maybe my group wasn't rep highly represented or didn't do as well traditionally because of those stereotypes, because the field, those fields had fixed views about us. But it's a learned set of skills, and I'm going to do it. Right. You wanted to go back to cognitive science. No, I just wondered if you wanted to. Do you have anything more? No, but I'm, I'm, I want to hear what you have to say. Oh, so I, if, I want um, two things. I'm, I'm really, really excited about the explosion of research speaking to the plasticity of the brain. Um, for example, a study came out two years ago looking at teenagers, following them across four years, and showing that there were large changes in IQ for some of the kids, and it was paralleled by changes in the density of neurons, hmm. nerve endings, in the relevant parts of the brain. So, this idea that if you use it, you'll grow it, you'll, you, your connections will be strengthened, the density will be increased. It's very exciting. Yes. It puts kids in charge of their brains, and it tells them what they are doing now makes a difference for them. And it's scientifically rigorous. I mean, it's, it, it, is, it is our best understanding yeah. of what's actually going on. 
it's not saying everyone's the same or anyone can be anyone or anything. It's that, whoa, you can really grow your brain through um, hard work, good instruction, and so forth. I'm also very excited by work that in cognitive science that is identifying the components of intelligence, of executive function, mm. and figuring out how to teach it. So intelligence has always been this mysterious thing that some people seem to have and some don't, and that Mrs. Wilson thought was embodied in these little scores. But now to think, no, it's a set of skills that, and many of them can be taught or enhanced. That's really exciting. So how do we get that message out? I know you've been involved with Brainology, mm -hmm. you've been involved with a wide mm -hmm. variety of measures to say, how do we impact public policy with this? Yeah. Because this is extremely important. Um, if we want to enhance and improve our educational mm -hmm. systems, which so drastically need enhancing yes. and improving, because uh, sadly there are still, I would mm -hmm. imagine, quite a few Mrs. Wilsons out there, perhaps not to that extent, but I'm sure lots and lots of them, maybe yeah. more, I don't know. Um, there has to be a way of, uh, of exposing teachers to this. There has to be a way of making it scalable so that people uh, in a wide yeah. variety of areas, you can only give so many talks yourself, you're yes. not actually in at least that mm -hmm. sort of a classroom. So how do we go about doing that? On the public policy side, how do we take these ideas that you and your colleagues have developed and tangibly and practically implement them in the in schools yes. and in the public milieu to to for the benefit of all we're working very hard i'm sure <laughs> in may last may the white house had a conference on mindsets and um how's obama's mindset by the way is that, is that, a, is that a growth mindset it's not up for discussion sure. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um the white house had a conference on growth mindsets and right and how to scale our interventions. So what came out of that conference um, it has been a, a research network that is now launching a national study that will bring our mindset intervention to schools across the country and will be able to evaluate who are the groups it works best for, how, uh, what are the settings that best uh, foster growth mindset and um, enhance the effectiveness of our intervention? How can we make it work better for all different groups? We're very excited to be taking our uh, growth mindset workshops uh, to a national level. We also are launching a whole line of research on teacher practice. Mm -hmm. Um, we're rigorously evaluating different kinds of practice. And we're also asking, what are ways in which teachers may misinterpret our findings? We're finding a lot of teachers are taking the praise work and saying, oh, well, you just have to tell kids to try hard. Really? That's a gross misinterpretation. How can they, how can they come up with that? Well, because praising effort 
seemed to do some good and they in think, some circumstances and they just universally tell kids to try hard and nine times out of ten when a teacher or parent said oh it's not working I said are you telling your kid to try hard yeah isn't that what I'm supposed to do <laughs> no I say that's called nagging <laughs> and we've shown in a very large-scale study that telling kids to try, try hard or if at first you don't succeed that has no impact because yeah, first of all, in a fixed mindset, kids hate effort. They think if you're smart, you shouldn't need it. Right. If you're, so you're why a loser you're, if you're working hard. Yeah. Um, so telling me to work hard could all, almost be insulting. Right. Or just telling a child to work hard when they don't know when they, they don't know what to do or they don't know how to work effectively. It's not going to work. Um, so then they may really conclude they're not good at something. Sure. If they're not doing well, you're mm -hmm. blaming the victim, perhaps, to some extent. Mm -hmm. But instead, we're finding that if you tell kids, um, remember, when you work hard at these uh, problems, you grow your math brain. Or remember, when you do hard problems, you become better at math. Remember, by practicing um, these problems, you, whatever, grow your math brain, become smarter at math, become better at math. So this connection between when you do this, you grow your brain, kids are very motivated by that. Right. And also, I would imagine the precedence, what we talked mm -hmm. about earlier, the description of so many people who have accomplished so much, and when you look carefully, uh, at what they've done, mm -hmm. the failures that they have encountered, the yeah. difficulties that they had, the obstacles that they had to overcome. Mm -hmm. That can be a role model in the very positive sense yes. of the word, which I would imagine. But only else. when the child or individual understands the growth mindset. Just telling them they worked hard to succeed. Right. But I shouldn't because I shouldn't have to work hard if I'm good at it, right. if I'm really good. Or I don't really believe Michael Jordan worked that hard. He put that on top of his natural talent. Right. Or he was honing some of his skills. But it wasn't integral to the whole process. It wasn't right. integral to the process. Or maybe he's an exception. Right. Uh, therefore, a growth mindset creates a context mindset in which you can un fully understand that that hard work is growing your brain, it's growing your talent. Okay. So if I'm a teacher and I'm in the middle of Wisconsin mm -hmm. and I'm listening to this and I think, oh, well, this is interesting. How do I learn more mm -hmm. about this? Or how do I, um, how can I expose my colleagues mm -hmm. to, to this knowledge? Or what concretely can I do about yes. this? What, what do I do? Well, first, I would read my book, Mindset. Right. Second, I'm affiliated with a company, MindsetWorks.com, mm -hmm. that has a teacher toolkit and a school toolkit that helps uh, schools start implementing growth mindset at the different levels. I would start, um, many uh, schools and school districts have declared themselves growth mindset schools. One thing that people have found effective is to start with a group uh, book read hmm. and discussion, a chapter a week. 
And another thing that people have found effective is this. To recognize that everybody is a mixture of the mindsets. If you say, oh, um, growth mindset is good, fixed mindset is bad, everyone will say, oh, I have a, a growth mindset. Whether they do or don't, mm -hmm. they'll banish fixed mindset thoughts from their minds. They'll deny them. They'll disown them. But they won't change them. So I think it's important in group discussions to say, look, we all have fixed mindset thoughts at one time or another. We all think, oh, I could never do this, or this student will never learn this, um, or I know the smart students from the night, or the school's job is to figure out who, who can learn and who, you know. So many um, wacky fixed mindset thoughts are going through right. people's minds all the time. It's important to own them and examine them as we change more toward a growth mindset. It's, ex it's also important to legitimize why teachers might have had a fixed mindset. They may have had their version of Mrs. Wilson. Um, and so it's important to say, you know, we used to think this, but now neuroscience is leading us to think that. And we ha it's exciting to explore the implications for how we learn and how we teach. Many um, teachers are used to being the authority. And uh, rather than thinking of themselves as fellow travelers right. with their students, people who are also growing their brains. So many teachers in growth mindset schools are now saying to their students, thank you for helping me grow my brain. Or, you know, when I understand how you're struggling, they say, might say to a student, it helps me be a better teacher. Thank you for helping me grow my brain. So you, you do realize that um, Mrs. Wilson will go down in infamy. No, I hope she goes down in good history. No, no, I mean, I mean, so, you're, far, you're, you're mm -hmm. far too big and developed a person to be petty. But, but, I'm uh, not, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. Uh, because to the extent that that has helped us have these insights that are helping people, how can I regret that? Sure. So I want to tell you about a few more things that we tell teachers. Uh, we tell them to talk about struggle, make it a good word. Who's having a fabulous struggle? Hmm. And actually, I worked with a, uh, a unit in a Silicon Valley company, a, a department in a big Silicon Valley company, and now they're talking struggle. They were existing within a culture of genius where it was not acceptable to be wrong or make a mistake or right. not look like you have the highest IQ in the world, and that was restrictive. And apparently they are being so much more creative and innovative now that they're talking about what they're struggling with. It's, not a shameful right. thing. So it's embracing. It's embracing. So teachers should be talking about struggle and, and telling students that that's when they're growing their brains the most. That's when their neurons are really making these stronger connections. Struggle, struggle, struggle. Um, and 
you know, teacher, I'm having a great struggle. So is this something which is being embraced by teacher education? I mean, listening to you, I'm saying, isn't this the sort of thing that I would want someone to be exposed to repeatedly at teacher's college? Yes. So, so is, is that happening now? Yeah, well, let me say a few more things sure, sure, along those other lines. We're also doing research on this incredible word, the word yet. Hmm. I learned of a high school in Chicago where um, students had to pass 84 units to graduate, and if they didn't master a unit, they got the grade not yet. And I thought, how fantastic. And the students were going around, how many not yets do you have? How many not yet? They'd never do that if they got a failing grade. Not yet means, hey, there's a learning curve, and you're not at the end of it, but you're somewhere there. Yeah. And so just hear the difference. If a child says, I'm not good at math yet, I can't do it yet, I tried, it didn't work yet, it's doing a few things. It's putting them on the learning curve. It's telling them you have that expectation that they can succeed through their efforts and your instruction. It's a fantastic word that turns a fixed mindset statement by the child into a growth mindset idea. So all of these ideas uh, are strike me as not only important, but also quite concrete. I mean, mm -hmm. You're not just talking about abstract things. Yeah. You're saying, here is one particular technique we can use. Here is another technique mm -hmm. we can use. Um, and, and so you're telling me of isolated examples of different people who are using yes. them. Is, is there, uh, these things take time, I appreciate it, but does it look as if there's momentum towards somehow unifying things, having it a little bit more codified within mm -hmm. teachers' colleges in general, being part of the curriculum. I realize that you're, not so much the curriculum, but being yes. part of teacher education, maybe curriculum. Yes. Um, you're talking about organizing things at the national level, at the White yes. House, and then at an individual level, but teacher training seems to me to be a, an essential aspect Yes, I of think it. teacher training is absolutely essential. We haven't made a push to infiltrate teacher <laughs> training programs. Um, my impression is more and more of them are incorporating this because it is research-based. Right. It is concrete. It is easily implementable. I am hoping that over time we will develop more and more materials that can inform educators exactly how to implement. Uh, someone came to me recently representing a country and saying, hey, we want to, our schools are failing miserably. We, how can we use the growth mindset across these schools, many of which are in poverty? And I hope one day to be able to say, here, take this. Right. So that brings me up to, that, that makes me think of another point that I had wanted to ask you. Um, when I read your book, I, th I was uh, struck by many things. But I had a very clear sense that the references that you were making, the world that you were talking about, was, was, all, uh, was all related to the United States. Mm -hmm. um, of course, we're talking about people. We're talking yeah. about people's values, people's culture, mm -hmm. people's self-defense mechanisms, and all mm -hmm. the rest of that. This is, by, you know, this is the human condition that mm -hmm. we're, we're discussing. Um, but I can also imagine, as you try to uh, move forwards 
to have impact in different parts of the world, yeah. you would potentially run into other cultural issues, mm -hmm. other ways that people transmit information, mm -hmm. other values about what you should admit, what you yes. shouldn't admit, and so yes. forth. You have an anecdote in your book about how you were in Provence for some time, yes. and you enjoyed it, and it was very nice, but you had this sense that you were... Uh, passing a test. You were passing a test. <laughs> and then when you had lunch in Italy, and that you, you, you felt suffused with feelings of acceptance and warmth mm -hmm. because you were in a different culture. So I've spent some time in France. I not only do I have some appreciation for this notion of passing a test, I have developed a relatively keen sense of awareness that the entire country feels that way. The people <laughs> who actually live there oh. and who were born there and that that's part of, that is I think an essential aspect of the culture. People told me to take that out of the book, but I didn't. Really? Why yeah. did they tell you to take that out of oh, the book? Oh, that it was a national stereotype. Oh, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so, um, but and and I think if it's scientifically, if it, if it has some truth to it, that it should be mentioned. Mm -hmm. And also, of course, it's relevant. I mean, it, yeah, it, it, not all people in all cultures and all societies are the same. Yeah. We all know that. Yes. And different um, uh, different programs and different attitudes mm -hmm. and, and different solutions will work yes. differently in different places. And so. Uh, have you have you thought about that as you as you yes. move forward? Um, we are tremendously in, interested in cultural differences. There are many cultural differences within our country, and um, so I'll start there. Uh, Stephanie Freiberg, a wonderful researcher at the University of Arizona, grew up on an American, a Native American reservation near Seattle. She went back and transformed the elementary school in terms of growth mindset. Wow. And um, the results were amazing. The school, the um, kindergarten, first grade moved from the bottom of the district to near the top in a year and a half. Wow. Um, but I raise it for this reason. At first, when she introduced the idea of growing your brain, okay. But then she thought, okay, cultural values. Growing your brain so you can one day help your family and contribute to your community. <laughs> so we have to always be aware that we're plugging into a value system. And... Um, give reasons for why kids might want to grow their brains. Right. And that's just one example, but I think it represents the kinds of challenges we might meet in different parts of the world. We have uh, started to look at data from South American countries, European countries, Asian countries, and it does look like Mindset or something like mindset is playing a role in achievement across the board. But if we want to go in and have an impact, we absolutely have to learn much more about the values and practices of the particular culture. And also, I would imagine the way that they look at you and your work in America in general mm -hmm to turn it on its head a little bit, we talked about, or at least I talked about, 
maybe we both talked about the, the idea how the French may feel that they're passing yeah. the test and the constraints. From uh, my sense, my guess of looking at America from the French perspective, or maybe from the English yeah. perspective, there's a sense of, oh, these Americans are always going on about all this stuff, you know, confidence, confidence, development. They have too yeah. much confidence. All these people walk around, they think they know everything, they don't know a goddamn thing, they're not, you know. So I'm, uh, I'm simplifying and I'm yeah. exaggerating. Yeah, no, 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 I but hear there, you. There, there, is, there is a sense that uh, I, I can imagine you would have to say, well, hang on, there, uh, it's not all about uh, conforming to your stereotype of America, there are mm -hmm. some things that are particularly American, but these, these yeah. are fundamental aspects. These of, are of fundamental, these are fundamental ways of seeing the world that seem to be more or less universal. And it isn't about confidence. It's actually in a fixed mindset that you get people strutting around thinking they know everything. Right. In a growth mindset, you're not um, puffing up people's confidence. You're telling them that they can develop themselves to accomplish something later. Sure. But it's about rolling up your sleeves and doing it. It's not about talking the talk. Right. No, I appreciate that, but I'm saying these yeah. from their perspective, yeah. I can imagine oh, I, what they know, might be saying, taking things out of context. Yeah, don't take it out of context. Right. But, but it's true. Um, international research shows that our students are among the most confident in the world while being not among the highest achievers. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the, the um, answer has not been inflating them uh, with confidence. This is, about, this is about how to get kids to use the strategies and put in the effort and um, develop the motivation that they need to accomplish things. So uh, you've been very generous with your time. I've got a few more questions sure. I can ask you. Um, We're good. I really, yes. Um, <laughs> We've talked a little bit about cognitive science, and we've talked a little mm -hmm. bit about uh, uh, aspects, obviously, mm -hmm. specifically of your work. I'd like to get a little broader now and look at psychology as a discipline, mm -hmm. um, and maybe cognitive science as a discipline, mm -hmm. and psychology's part in that. But first, I'd like to back up, because I've been asked by some people uh, during some of these discussions, well, I don't know anything about subject X, so I'd, I'd mm -hmm. feel more comfortable if I had a few definitions or a few, mm -hmm. uh, I, I hear this jargon, I hear these words. You, as you pointed out, are very careful not to rely upon this, when you, at least when you wrote your popular mm -hmm. book. Um, but sometimes it presents a barrier to entry for people who are interested in mm -hmm. psychology, but they may not, um, uh, they may be intimidated or they may not know very much about mm -hmm. some of these words. So I'm going to ask you a few questions about some definitions and ask if you can maybe give me a sense of that to put some context sure. in. So developmental psychology, what is, what is that? How would I define that? Developmental psychology is uh, the study of how children develop. What are the inputs? What are the experiences? Um, what are the nature, nature, what are the natures and nurtures um, that affect how children develop? Developmental psychologists also study how things unfold, reasoning processes. Uh, what do kids come with? Do they come already knowing what an object is? Do they come with a sense of number? Um, things like this. 
And what about social psychology? What is that? Social psychology is really a study of how social factors impact our behavior. Social groups, social contexts, the world we live in. How does it shape the way we think and the way we act? Good. That's very pithy. You're doing this off the top of your head. <laughs> uh, okay, I've got a couple more. Personality Person psychology. What is that? Personality psychology is how people differ. Social psychology is how people are similar but are affected in systematic ways by their environment. Personality psychology is how people differ, individual differences, how you may differ from me and I may differ from someone else. And we try to understand that as a way of understanding why people think, feel, and act differently. So personality psychology could be looked at, I guess, as the flip side of social psychology mm -hmm. to some extent. Mm -hmm. And what about self-regulation, which plays uh, yeah. certainly a role? Self-regulation is about how we control ourselves to be able to reach our goals more effectively. Do I hold back my impulses? Do I um, regulate my attention? These kinds of things. Um, do I delay gratification in order to reach a more important long-term goal. We also talked to, we didn't actually talk, but you mentioned in your book, obviously a, a theme is potential. Mm -hmm. um, and how in a growth mindset, that's constantly playing a role. One is constantly developing, one is constantly moving yes. forwards. Uh, presumably, it also has, um, there's also a, a construct of what potential means yes. in a fixed mindset as well. Mm -hmm. or, or, so how, how would you... How In a fixed mindset, you have a predetermined potential. And, you know, that old IQ score was thought to summarize that potential. But in a growth mindset... <clears throat> but in a growth mindset, um, whoa, you have no idea what you're capable of achieving when you catch fire and you have effective mentors and uh, you have effective strategy, you have no idea. And nothing that you measure now can tell you what you have the potential to achieve. So you have virtually unbounded potential, well, de facto unbounded potential. Yeah. Who knows? It, unknown. Right. Right. So, that's, so thank you very much for that. That's, I think, very helpful for, for a lot of people. Um, future areas of uh, research for you mm -hmm. and also within the realm of cognitive science and psychology as a whole. What sorts of things are you excited about doing in the future and yeah. how does this fit into... To we, on the personal level, we've been taking our mindset research to a variety of other issues. Uh, with my former student David Yeager, we've been looking at how mindsets play a role in bullying and aggression in high schools. Mm. Um, and um, he has been designing interventions to combat aggression, and very effective ones using a mindset framework. We have a whole program of research on peace in the Middle East. Really? Mm -hmm. You're going to be able to affect that. Good luck with that. You guys are not, not nothing less than uh, ambitious. <laughs> 
So we have research showing that when you teach uh, Palestinians or Israelis um, a growth mindset, their attitudes towards each other improve and they become willing to entertain serious, major compromises for the sake of peace. These are presumably the children you're talking about. You're, no, you're, we're talking about the adults. And um, some of our participants were members of Fatah and Hamas living in the West Bank. And we found the same thing there. That when you think, hey, those people, when you have a fixed mindset, you, say, you think, oh, those people are evil, deceptive, duplicitous, violent, and will never change. Where's, there's no basis for liking or compromise or trust. Sure. But if you think, hey, people have the potential for change. They are a certain way now um, because of the environment, because of the political situation, because of their leaders and what the leaders may be fomenting. Mm -hmm. But the, everyone has the potential for a change. So the future is open. Yeah. Many groups that looked violent or evil in the past now seem perfectly normal. Um, so now we're, uh, we have a big project where we're designing more major workshops that we hope will create the growth mindset and help it stick over long periods of time. So how do you do that? How, how, do, you, how do you go and engage with, with, with people just very practically? You, you say, okay, I'm Carol and I've got my team with me. I want to... We have land in Jerusalem or yeah. land in the Gaza Strip and start we talking have, to people. Um, <laughs> we have um, an incredible collaborator, Iran Halpern, in Israel, who works with various organizations to do this research. Because I'm, I'm guessing, without knowing anything about this, that, that the risk that you run, I guess, in the beginning, because it's not a risk, but, but what you might encounter is preaching to the choir a little bit, that mm -hmm. the very people who are willing to sign up for various programs themselves mm -hmm. are sufficiently open-minded right. or sufficiently... So in our ones. initial research, we found that the biggest impact was on the most radical or right-wing people. How do you get them to participate in these? Oh, well, they... Um, you drag them off the street? The, well, the original research was done by a survey company Okay. And we worked our interventions or experiments into the material. But now we're developing these broader workshops, and they are in the context of leadership workshops. Cool. So looking at psychology as a whole now, um, where do you see the field going? What, what are the, uh, aside altogether from your yeah. work, where do you see the cutting edge areas being, what advice would you give to some uh, very ambitious, capable through a growth mindset perspective, yeah. uh, young person who's moving into this, uh, thinking about moving into this particular field? I think psychology is more exciting than it's ever been. Uh, when I went into psychology, Personality psychology was putting people in boxes. Are you this kind of person or that kind of person? Um, most of psychology was not relevant to anything people care about. And now, 
it's changed completely. The most eminent researchers are doing things that matter, matter to the world. And um, so that's super exciting, matter politically, matter in terms of um, well-being, matter in terms of longevity. And the other thing that's so exciting is that I believe we are changing our view of human nature from something very static to something that's uh, capable of tremendous growth. So not just in my work, but um, psychologists around the world are developing interventions that are looking to change very basic um, qualities or looking to change people's situations and their behaviors quite dramatically. And this whole idea that we can grow into people who are more productive, more effective, more caring um, is, is just tr so exciting. That's tremendously inspiring. Are there any dark clouds on the horizon? Are there any things that worry you? The possibility of things being taken out of context or people moving in the wrong direction based upon insufficient evidence? Is there, is there anything that you're concerned uh, about? Um, well, I think in the end, there are always dark clouds. There are always, um, you know, you're always going to have um, critics. There are always going to be naysayers. Or, or and you may have people whose science isn't as sound as it sh should be. But I think in the end, uh, this trend toward making a difference is so important and the things that really work I hope will last. That's great. Is there anything that you'd like to say that I haven't asked, we haven't had a chance to talk about? You'd like to I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot of ground. I think so too. Well, thank you very much, Carol. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. And, uh, thank you for welcoming me into your beautiful home and giving me so much of your time. Great. This was great. Thanks. Great. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Social Psychology, along with separate discussions with Roy Baumeister, Barbara Fredrickson, Yanko Tipsarevich, and Philip Zimbardo. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.